Hello, everyone. In this podcast, we will be discussing sensitive topics such as sexual assault. It's important to take care of yourself while listening. Some suggestions are listening while you're in a healthy headspace or knowing who you can reach out to if you become upset. Our 24-7 helpline for crisis calls based out of Central Florida is 407-500-HEAL. By contacting the national hotline at 1-800-656-4673, you can get support and learn about your local resources. There's always someone ready to help. the Victim Service Center podcast. Here we sit down with professionals that serve survivors and victims of trauma or those who've experienced violence and have conversations about social issues. This week, we are talking about secondary survivors. My name is Emily Mitchell. My pronouns are she, her, and I am the education coordinator at the Victim Service Center of Central Florida. With me today, I have David Sines. David uses he, him pronouns and was born and raised in Winter Garden, Florida. David is a certified public accountant and a music lover. David has been married to his wife, Rachel, for almost 10 years, and they share a beautiful two-year-old daughter named Catherine. So David, thank you so, so much for being here today. Happy to be here, Emily. Thank you for having me. And I also have returning Orialis Sosa. So Orialis uses she, her pronouns and is a registered mental health counselor intern in the state of Florida. She earned her master's in clinical mental health counseling from the University of Central Florida. Orialis's background consists of providing counseling and victim advocacy support to survivors of crime and trauma. In her current role, she provides counseling support to high school students, and she also is part of our therapy department at the VSC, and Orialis actually used to be a victim advocate as well, so she has a lot of VSC um, history. So Orialis, thank you so, so much for being here as well. Yeah, I'm always happy to be here, so thank you. I'm really excited to have this super important discussion because as just a brief introduction. On this podcast, we have talked a lot about the many diverse effects trauma can have on survivors, but we have not talked about how that trauma can actually affect a survivor's support system. So that can include loved ones, friends, people who work with that survivor. So today we will be talking about secondary survivors, tips on how to be a good supporter while also taking care of yourself, some of the pressures secondary survivors may face and ways we can heal. So with that, I always like to start off with some definitions here. So I was hoping, Orialis, could you define for us what is a primary survivor and what is a secondary survivor? Yeah, so, you know, a primary survivor, that's typically um, the individual that we focus on when we're talking about healing. Um, but our primary survivor is the person who actually went through uh, the event, um, the traumatic event or the crime. And then secondary survivor can really be anyone who is connected to that person, anybody who cares for that person. So 
family members, children, partners, uh, you know, friends. Um, and again, they're considered secondary survivors because, because they care about that person, that event can have the same impact or, you know, similar impact on them as well. I love that definition. And we're able to service secondary survivors at the VSE. Is that correct? Yeah, so uh, VSE provides free counseling services. Uh, we also have our 24-7 helpline, and that would be for a primary survivor, but um, the support will also be there for secondary survivors to help them through their own healing, um, or if they also just have questions about you know, supporting their loved one. Awesome. Thank you so much, Orialis. And you know, we talk a lot about normal responses to trauma, and we try really hard to let people know that they are normal responses to trauma. Um, For example, some survivors may cry while others will be emotionally numb. um, And this is different for everyone. So what are some normal responses or common reactions to being a secondary survivor? And I'll open this up to Orialis or David, whoever would like to jump in. I would say, I mean, just like you said, you know, survivors can um, experience symptoms. Some may not experience any of the, you know, symptoms that we think of as natural. So um, the reactions for secondary survivors are going to be just as varied. Um, I guess the first one that comes to mind uh, would be feelings of guilt uh, or feelings of self-blame and shame. Um, So just like survivors themselves can kind of go through and think about like, what could I have done differently? you know, how should I have reacted differently? Um, Their loved ones may also, you know, feel that as well. Um, And, you know, whether they were there earlier in the day or not, they may still question, you know, how could I have prevented this from happening? Um, So they may struggle with that too. And I struggled with that immensely, at least during the first several years after the event that happened to Rachel, I think, you know, because of course, so much focus deservedly goes to the primary survivor. Um, But I didn't even realize that I was suffering and from so much trauma as I actually was, I think, because I was so focused on Rachel's healing and everything else I had in my life that I didn't want to, you know, be selfish in any manner and, and kind of put any kind of attention or effort towards me when I felt like Rachel was the one that was deserving of all the focus. So I didn't even really know that I had this, these traumas, but I mean, the, when, or Alice, when you mentioned the, the guilt, it's still, I, I mean, I've let 90% of it go that I was, you know, with Rachel earlier that evening when the incident occurred and just so many, what ifs, what if we'd gone to see a movie instead? What if we didn't, what if I was sick that day? And like my involvement in her day that day, I felt that just because I was there and I was present in the day that I had a hand to play in it. And it took me years and years and years to understand that that's, that's not the truth. That's just me looking for some sort of control, some sort of way of helping. Exactly. What could I have done differently? You know, Um, but there's nothing I could have done differently, you know, and and it's, and it already passed. So I couldn't change it. And I think that drove me the most crazy because like I, you know, you play out all these scenarios, but you can't go back in time. Um, so there's nothing you can do. So except focus on healing and, and still being supportive. And then I was able to finally get 
I think the you know the psychological uh, attention I deserved and and the the source my own sources of healing and a part of that was being active with the the victim service center like Rachel and I because she was an inspiration to me on on how to heal so I just kind of followed by her example. Yeah, I mean I also think like just like you said like the possibilities are endless so we can follow right like the person can follow that rabbit hole of the what ifs down until yeah. I mean it's just never ending and. I think one of the things like you said at the beginning is just like, I don't know, it's like the loneliness of it too, because like you said, all that, you know, all the attention and a lot of the information online is about like what the primary survivors are going through. And so just like you said, like you may not even realize like I'm experiencing trauma symptoms, right? And I can't like talk to anybody about it because my loved one is the one who deserves the support. So it can just be such a, a lonely experience in that, you know, too. Very lonely. And, you know, and, and fortunately, not a lot of people have to watch somebody they love go through something so traumatic. But the downside of that is, is I really didn't know who to talk to because, I mean, I, I didn't really talk to anybody because even my friends, that's such an intense thing that they can't relate to, fortunately. So where do you go? And I, I just, instead of really kind of worrying about me, I just focused all on her. Yeah. And I think that you're all bringing up such important points, which is, you know, if there are services out there, I feel like they're not being talked about enough for secondary survivors. And a lot of what you were mentioning, and I thank you so much for being so open and candid with us, David, um, it's really kind of mirroring how a survivor might feel, you know, kind of the, the guilt and the shame. Um, and absolutely. I love that you said the, the help that I deserved, because absolutely you deserve, um, you know, specific support in this because we're seeing how you went through a, a similar trauma, but it's different and it's, you know, more about your story. Um, also, I totally understand where you're coming from when you say like, I didn't have anyone to talk to and I want to uplift like that loneliness factor to it because we also share that like, you know, we should be confidential and shouldn't share, you know, stories of survivors without their consent. Right. So getting that confidential support and, and those resources is so integral. And I'm so glad to be part of the VSC that we're able to do that, but I'm exactly not sure um, how many services are similar to the VSC that are out there. David, if you're comfortable, um, I'd like to ask if you would be able to share a little bit about your story. Um, and of course, you can share however much or as little as you'd like. Sure. And it the, the whole experience was just surreal, uh, you know, because one day you live in your life that you've known your your entire life. And, and, and of course, we all have trauma as we grow up. Um, but, you know, when something as intense as a violent sexual crime on somebody you care about occurs, you know, when you watch the news and you see all these stories of bad things that happen to people, it's always somebody else, right? And these things will happen to me. I don't know that person. I feel bad for them. And I, I you know, I, I wish them the best, but that's just, it, it, it's not realistic because I don't see it in my world. And, you know, it was just an average day. Uh, Rachel and I hadn't really known each other too, too long. And, you know, we both like to go to the, to the same bar after work and blow off steam and, you know, and it was just another day. And, and me at the time that I hadn't really 
gone through therapy or anything. I just kind of dealt with issues. Like I was taught you drank or you just bottled it up. <laughs> uh, you know, you're as a guy, you know, I was kind of raised the old fashioned way to where if you're a male, you just either sucked it up and, you know, didn't talk about your feelings or you maybe had some unhealthy outlets that was more appropriate. Um, but the night in question, you know, it was just another day and I was just kind of in a bad place in my life and I was just drinking too much. And Rachel was there as normal. And, you know, it, it had come time for her to, to go. She was just off and I was going to, you know, I was going to stay because, you know, we had our circle of friends there and, you know, and she's like, Hey, if you need help getting home later, let me know. You know, I, I'd been in trouble for drinking before. Um, so, you know, she was kind enough, you know, to, to be a good friend and, and offer her services to, to, to give me a ride if I needed one. And that plays into my guilt a little bit too, because I did. And I just continued to drink. I was just in a bad head space and I, I drank too much. And I, you know, sent her a text message and she says, okay, I'll be right there. And came to get me and, you know, helped me home. She followed me in my car uh, and made sure I got home safely, which wasn't very far. And, you know, while she was gone is when um, the attacker got into her apartment. So, that lived with me for a long time that if I hadn't, you know, had issues with alcohol, maybe Rachel wouldn't have had to go through that. Um, you know, and then I didn't think anything of it. Actually, I think we got in an argument about something petty that day, you know, and, and, and that was it. It was just another day in the life. And I'll never forget. I was at work the next day and I get a message from her that says, can, can you please call me? It, it's, it's very important. And, you know, that was just kind of unexpected. Um, so I call her right away and I, you know, I'm like, Hey, what, what's going on? And, you know, I'll never forget what I was wearing. I'll never forget where I was. And I'll never forget the feeling when, you know, just, I could hear it in her voice. She just said, you know, something happened and, bad. and I could tell that she was tired and, and just absolutely traumatized and stressed. And she told me, things that I never wanted to hear happen to anybody. And I honestly, I felt like I was going to pass out. And I felt like what I was hearing wasn't real. And in my life it hasn't been the same since. I, I just, I feel like that event really kind of took a lot of innocence that I had at that moment. And just a, a, a horrible feeling. And what do you say to somebody? You know, I'm sorry. I, I, it just how can I help you, you know, and, and having to, unfortunately, at that point, I didn't really know all the details, but she told me enough to know. And, you know, again, it's something that you, you see on, on, on documentaries and on, on movies on television about somebody that's you know, sexually assaulted on campus or leaving a bar or something. And it happened to somebody I wasn't very close to. And I didn't know what to do or what to say, except for just be there however I could. And, and that's when everything changed for both her and I, and, you know, and her entire world changed, my entire world changed. Um, it brought us together in almost a trauma bonding way, um, you know, but I cared about her and I didn't want her to, to suffer alone. And I felt responsible. And she assured me that I wasn't, 
And, you know, and she's told me countless times over and over again that she thinks that I saved her because he was coming into the apartment anyway. And if I hadn't called, she wouldn't have been up, you know, and she came and when she came into the apartment, she was alert, you know, she'd been up, she helped me drive back to my apartment and came home um, as opposed to him coming in when she was defenseless in bed. Um, I, I, I still, it's still hard to go down that road and kind of believe that, but it gets me a little peace knowing that, you know, I didn't do anything wrong. It was the attacker that, 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 that did something wrong. And it's, it took me a long time to, to come to peace with that. I mean, just like you're, you know, just even like the way that you're describing it, right. Of how it like completely upended your life, you know, her life, like the, the relationships path, all of that. And as you're saying it, like the way that you're describing the feelings, you know, like remembering what that was like, never being able to forget that. Um, that's so similar to like what the primary survivors go through. You know what I mean? And again, like we just don't often pay attention to the fact that the secondary survivor can be experiencing that just the same as, you know, the primary person. Um, and I also really heard you talking about, you know, this feeling of like, you know, helplessness of not knowing, really, because no one's going to prepare you to know what to say, just like you said, or, right. you know, what to do when something like that happens. So just like that helplessness of how do I, I see my loved one hurting so much and, you know, what can I do to help them and not knowing? Yeah. And that was the hard part was the hopelessness and compounded with the, the feeling that I was somewhat responsible. Um, you know, but I think just instinctually, I think my inner voice was just saying, just be there however you can, you know, and I helped her um, move out of that apartment. And, and I, I was in real estate at the time and I, I found her a, a place in a nicer neighborhood that I felt was safer and she's not from Florida. So she looked at a couple and I'm like, I don't know if I feel safe you live in there. Let's find you somewhere else. Um, and, you know, it was really inspirational to see just her friends really show up and she didn't have to lift a finger when it came to moving her, you know, and like it was, it, we just got her out of there and got her somewhere safe and just watching that was that was really helpful although i don't think my, my trauma had really kicked in yet i think i was just almost in an adrenaline protect rachel mode uh to really understand what was going to happen to me uh but at the moment you know it was really nice to see wow there's actually people doing good in the world and you know and when she got settled and and as that kind of effort to to, to get rachel safe kind of went away the bad feelings started to come, um, you know, and feelings that I weren't used to. I wasn't used to that level of anger or hatred towards anybody. I mm -hmm. grew up in a relatively innocent environment, came from a, 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 my parents were married and, you know, not a lot of trauma growing up. You know, I, my childhood was weird, just like everybody else's was, but nothing, nothing significant happened to that level of trauma. And to have this now, I felt it was like I, I had a tumor that just was filled with fear and hate, and I didn't know how to get rid of it. And I just thought the worst things about this guy. And I remember when he was still loose, and they showed the picture from the ATM machine on the TV screen, and I'm yelling at him, I ever see you. And I had to make eye contact with this guy in the courtroom. And I can't even begin to, to explain the emotions that came out of that, that level of anger and what I would do. And it really made me question my own humanity because I didn't think I was capable of, of such bad thoughts. 
and that just turned into a spiral of of just being lost and not really knowing how to heal yeah well it's kind of like you know maybe also like experiencing like you said like shame like surprising yourself like not knowing who you are anymore like that i was capable of having these thoughts like coupled with the shame of having those thoughts which you know talking about like some of those natural reactions is absolutely natural right to want to protect you know your loved one and so having those thoughts of anger and revenge or um yeah something that's very surprising and people may not understand you know that may come up coupled with the shame of again like that self-blame you know would make it even harder to to seek out that that support as well absolutely and yeah while you were talking david i also heard Aurealis, which you mentioned too, it's just kind of this shift in almost like not identity, but there's peace to you that you were like, oh, where is that coming from? And it's super important that we, once again, just like we share with survivors, that we tell their supporters that it's not your fault because we say that to survivors too, because again, the blame should always, always be put back on the perpetrator, right? There's nothing that we do that ask for it or that you know we have failed to protect and things like that so um so and it sounds like it's so inspiring to hear that incredible support that you were mentioning too i mean i want to uplift that as well um and also i i appreciate that you you talking a little bit about kind of the pressures that we put on men when it comes to seeking mental health services on mm-hmm. um, this kind of like suck it up mentality um, that we put, we have like a stigma in general on mental health, but I think that men have this second barrier that they may have to overcome to seeking mental health. We actually have a podcast that's coming up that's specifically about that. So I wanted to wow, kind of uplift that. Yeah. Um, but with that, you know, we were talking a little bit about common misconceptions about being a secondary survivor. So what are some of those myths that we may have? So when it comes to thinking about this or even the lack of talking about it. Um, So for example, I wanted to ask, you know, is there this kind of pressure to have to be this person's like everything instead of just continuing to be their loved one? Absolutely, Emily. There was a, there was a lot of pressure and I don't feel at all for one second that Rachel ever intentionally put this pressure on me. I put it on myself um, to, to be her everything and that was just my reaction and maybe that was my unconscious way of of maybe avoiding my own trauma was to focus it all on her and and i was kind of suppressing my own and just kind of putting off dealing with my own experience by being her everything and you know because she was waking up in the middle of the night scared and you know she'd call me or just knowing that she was struggling and, you know, when she was looking for a place to live and just in the court proceedings were so drawn out and the perpetrator really made a circus of the whole event. He called her, he called me on my cell phone at work and mm-hmm. told and asked me not to go for pressing charges and he got a hold of her phone records and that's how he was able to get a hold of me and that actually inspired Rachel to put in her hand to help get Marcy's law passed because her information was available because he became his own attorney for a little bit and it was just a circus sideshow that just drew out the pain 
And he was delay after delay after delay and the court proceedings got pushed back. So it was just such a long drawn out process. And, you know, and having to be a support system for that long and putting that pressure on myself for that amount of time to finally get through this and see some kind of justice served was exhausting. I can't even imagine. Um, And that's incredible that Rachel was kind of integral in Marcy's law. Um, For those who... um, who are listening, who may not know what Marcy's law is. I don't know if you are those or you, um, David can just quickly share a little bit about Marcy's law. I don't know if I'm the best source, but I'm happy to take a stab at it. Just in a nutshell, really what Marcy's law was about was protect, protecting the victim's rights of privacy. And, you know, cause there was loopholes in the system to where, you know, the, the information on the case could be made available during the court proceedings and that's how he was able to get our 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 information however with marcy's law they really kind of helped put a block to that to help keep the the victim's information private to avoid situations like harassment or you know or, or trying to meddle like when he was calling me i mean that was it took me a week to get over that he he calls me and I had some choice words for him and he was able to get my information, her information, Rachel's identity got stolen. And we were actually able to trace that back to somebody he was related to. And because of the information was available. So fortunately with Marcy's law, a lot of the, you know, the victim's information is, is kept guarded better to avoid harassment, you know, um, you know, because there are loopholes in the system that can enable somebody you know, like in our situation where the perpetrator, you know, decided to become his own attorney for some reason, and he was able to access um, the information. That's probably why he did it, because he, you know, for somebody his age, he learned the legal system pretty well. Uh, so fortunately, Marcy, Marcy's Law will help, hopefully be able to help prevent, you know, situations like that occur. I appreciate that, that you kind of talked a little bit about Marcy's Law, I know none of us are like lawyers here. So <laughs> we understand that. But I was just hoping that like, yeah, I think that it's just showing how integral, um, you know, things like that, as far as advocating um, for survivors and having a survivor focus justice system so that we do avoid things like that. So um, it's amazing that Rachel and you were able to like help um, kind of advocate for these rights that everyone should have. So yeah, the, I'm so, so sorry that happened. That's terrifying to hear. Um, and I'm really glad that now Marcy's law exists. Um, kind of going back to some common misconceptions. Um, I think that we've kind of addressed this idea that secondary survivors are not affected by the trauma, but I didn't know if anyone wanted to hop in on um, kind of addressing that myth. Yeah, I mean, I would say, you know, survivor, secondary survivors themselves um, do deserve and may have to go through their own healing journey. Um, you know, for one, like it just made me think about with, uh, what David was talking about is like, you kind of can become like a sponge, you know, for all these emotions and all these different things that are happening. And then you may not have, right, the coping skills or um out of respect for the survivor, because again, you may feel that that's their story, right? So that I don't have the right to be telling people about it. You're this big sponge with like nowhere for this stuff to go. Um, 
you know, and then also going through something like this, just like for primary survivors, this can really bring up old, like unresolved issues, whether it's, you know, not learning how to manage emotions, um, past experiences that you've been through yourself, you know, all of a sudden it's like the, you know, that Pandora's box may be opened by, you know, your loved one's experience as well. Um, and so, yeah, you know, you may have to go through your own healing journey and learn your own coping skills, you know, to seek support for that. And that was definitely the case for me, Orialis, um, because, you know, again, the, the misconception that, that males are supposed to just be these, these rocks that are emotionless and just handle everything with strength and perseverance, you know, as, as much as we try, we're human too. And when, you know, you're not really given help, you know, just due to the environment you're in. I don't blame my parents, but it's just how the culture they were raised in the culture I was raised in. That's just, we didn't, we didn't address those things. Uh, and so, you know, not only did that Pandora's box, like you said, Orioles really open up. Um, and, you know, cause my own struggles I was going through that I never faced. And then here's some really intense drama. I mean, I had my problems like everybody else does, but this is this is kind of next level. And so it really puts that into perspective. Um, unfortunately, at the time, I really didn't have the tools or the know-how how to handle that kind of trauma in a healthy manner. Um, you know, my my go-to for years and years and years is alcohol, which proved to be amazing for the short term. But in the long term, it just caused even more damage. And, you know, I've, I've put drinking behind me. I've, I've, I've actually stepped away from it two years ago. And that opened its own can of worms, too, because now you're really forced to deal with these things, you know, with a clear mind and do it the right way to, to heal and be happy using the appropriate outlets as opposed to the ones that just give you a little band-aid. Let's, let's go to the root issue, figure out where the, where the hurting is. And that's really when we can start doing some healing, I think. Definitely. I, I really appreciate you sharing all of that, David, and congrats. Um, and I, that was all, like, while you were talking, I hadn't even thought of that idea where, you know, when we are turning to um, unhealthy coping me mechanisms that just aren't sustainable in the long term, right. um, you know, after that, it can feel um, really, it's difficult because we were relying on that um, to cope. And so I didn't even think of that kind of like added piece to it as far as like, now we have to move forward in a different way. Um, and I think that there might also be a misconception too, that secondary survivors have to always be there for the survivor and be that rock. Um, did you feel like that that was another pressure too, um, that you were feeling again, not blaming anyone for this, it just kind of like societal pressures. Um, but I wonder if you wanted to address this myth as well. Yeah, absolutely. Because my thing was, you know, when all your focus is, like you say, being the rock, so to speak, who's going to be my rock? And, you know, I, I, I had no one to turn to. And, and, and it's not because nobody was available. I just didn't know where to go or how to go about doing it. So that was extremely isolating, um, you know, and I'm also just not addressing my own pain makes it worse in the long run because you're just dealing with this this unreleased bad energy that's just inside of you and you know fortunately over the years i've been able to exercise that out um 
but yeah, I mean, like you said, when you're, when you have to be the rock and you know, you feel like there's nobody to do that for you, it's hard because it gets, it gets, it gets tiring because who's going to take care of me. People only have so much bandwidth, you know? Um, So it is, and it can't be hard again to say, know when you see your loved one struggling or to schedule some time for yourself or like focus on your own hobbies and, you know, things like that. And in order to be there right in the long term, we have to be able to, you know, release some of that for ourselves um, to be able to be a support. But it, it's so hard because, again, all that guilt can come up by, you know, putting those boundaries Which uh, absolutely everyone should know that like this, it's impossible to always be there for someone like that. And again, I think that I talk about it a lot, how you can't pour from an empty cup um, and everyone has rights to um, taking care of themselves and their own healing journey. Um, And again, David, your story is so, so powerful. And thank you so much for sharing it. Um, speaking of healing journeys, what did you find helped you? And was there like a particular like turning point? Yeah, it took a little bit. I couldn't, I, you know, Rachel got involved right away. And I think that's really what helped her heal um, effectively as she got involved. You know, she, you know, the, the victim service center was so, so such an instrumental way in, in helping her and us heal that, you know, she really wanted to give back as she could. And, you know, she got really close with certain members of the law enforcement that, that, that helped um, bring the perpetrator to justice. And so, you know, they, they got in touch and she started doing, um, you know, speaking sessions with Texas Salcedo's uh, criminal justice department at, at, at Valencia. And it took a while, but I think the first time I saw her speak and I saw the effect it was having on these, you know, these up and coming people that were getting into our law enforcement, the effect that it had on them. And, you know, and she would always be so thankful and graceful, grace, you know, graceful to them as far as what they did to help. And, you know, that they, they read all these stories in their training, but here's somebody live in person telling their story from their own, you know, words is was extremely powerful and inspirational that i'm like wow if if, and she did it with just such grace and you know she started to say after a while and after a few of these speaking sessions that i kind of started to feel like it happened to somebody else um not that she was disconnecting herself from the situation but the fact that she had done that and faced that publicly um and addressed it to complete strangers was really a big part of her healing. And I thought, you know, if that works for her, work for me. So I was able to help kind of get involved and um, kind of be her uh, Garfunkel to her, Paul Simon, you know, and do some speaking engagements, you know, cause Rachel's the star, but it, it really kind of opened up the door for me to kind of share my story. And that really helped me. Um, I was asked to write a blog on the Victim Service Center site about my experience and it took a while Um, I just, I remember the night, it was a couple hours and it was really hard to to put the words together, but it was very cathartic um, just to let it out 
you know, because going back to the misconceptions thing, you know, we just didn't, we don't talk about those things. And, you know, I've suffered from depression and anxiety my whole life. And I didn't even have the courage to tell my own mother about it until I was in my twenties. Cause we just didn't know, you know, we didn't really address mental health issues. It was, it was just, it was man up. It was be strong. Um, you know, which can make somebody that is dealing with these mental health issues feel even more isolated because your advice is to suck it up and be strong. I don't know how to do that. I need help. I need somebody to, to help me navigate through some of these issues I'm going through. And so just putting all these pieces together and exercising some of these bad thoughts by doing public speaking engagements and by being involved and by meeting other victims and their families and, and, and talking about how it affected them and how they've managed to deal and get through this, you know, not just the primary, but the secondary survivors as well. And the people that we've met through the Victim Service Center and the other engagements that, you know, Rachel's been involved with and kind of branching out into that network really just kind of now we're in a community of people that this is this has happened to us and now we're you know we're dealing with this together and we're trying to bring positive anything out of these experiences together and that has that made a massive difference in helping me find peace you said the word that i was thinking about um community like it just sounds like you guys really like worked on community building and like you said sharing your story um, I always think of like Brene Brown, if you guys maybe know Brene Brown, um, she's a shame researcher and she always talks about how shame thrives in silence, yeah. right? And so just the fact of like speaking out, even though we may feel that shame, we may be, feel kind of unsure, we're still struggling with that, but just finding others who, right, are, have gone through the same experience, you know, connecting, having that community sounds like that was like one of those really big, you know, turning points for for both of you guys it really was because we shared a lot of the same pain so we were able to really kind of relate to each other's stories and you know through that interaction and that bonding um we're, we're all stronger people for it yeah i can kind of see the ripple effects that healing can have right um and this communal aspect of it is super it's just so great to hear, um, honestly. With that, though, did you find that you ever had to kind of, you know, you talked about writing the blog and sharing your own story. Did you find that you had to kind of go on your own path independently from Rachel for your healing? Not really. I think I kind of rode in her um, dovetail or whatever it's called. I think I just kind of followed her lead. I think one of the, the, the biggest things that um, I think one of my bigger turning points was we were able to speak back when the university, oh, the old university club was in downtown Orlando. And that was a big event. And, you know, we were at a table with an ex-Magic basketball player, Nick Anderson, um, and he was able to, to, to speak. And, you know, and Rachel told her story in front of all these very important people you know, uh, you know, police officers, sergeants, that uh, just all these, these people in the community. And, you know, and when I got up and I, and I, I, I had a platform to, to speak and kind of br help bring awareness from my point of view, you know, and I, I noticed that when I was addressing the, the audience that day, I was kind of gearing towards the males and saying, this could happen to your wife, your daughter, and I hope it never does but we need to support organizations that help 
people for when it does happen because it could happen to anybody. And there needs to be this kind of resource available to help people navigate through this because there's no handbook. You know, this is when you deal with this kind of trauma, having the support of the Victim Service Center and, and other institutions that that provide this kind of support. I wish there was more organizations like this. I wish there was a VSC in every major city so people would have somewhere to go and as opposed to just you know, a victim going to a hospital and getting a rape kit in a very sterile, cold environment and there being nothing for secondary survivors and, and just the victim having to rely on their own whatever you know, and, and you're just kind of walking in the dark at some point, but um, just the support of the community and everybody involved was just such a major factor for both of us. I totally, whenever I talk about VSC services, I do mention that, yeah, we're, we're pretty lucky in central Florida and um, that we're able to provide that crisis response in a separate kind of location than that hospital setting that you were mentioning. And yeah, um, kind of walking alone that really resonated with me when you, when you shared that. And I'm really glad that you were able to kind of communally come together and, and that's incredible. All the speaking engagements that you and Rachel have done um, is just incredible. And, and it's so nice to hear about that. Um, Orialis, do you have any tips for secondary survivors as it pertains to being a support for someone? Yeah, um, I mean, I would say probably like at the foundation, um, you know, which it sounds like David like so beautifully did as well, is just to believe and accept and support what the survivor says. Um, you know, it's already so difficult for them to come and to tell anyone, right? Um, so just starting by, you know, just start by believing, um, you know, them, especially if you're like the first person that they're going to, a lot of times that can impact whether or not they're going to continue to seek, you know, help and support and talking about it with anybody else. So kind of starting there, um, you know, I would also say sometimes just allowing the person to be silent or um, to not, right, like respecting their choice to not talk about the event um, and to not share with you. And sometimes even just your presence and just being there, you know, is comforting and what they need. Um, you know, not pushing them to talk about things or, or uh, you know, make choices or take actions before they're ready. I guess along with that, I also think about making offers, not demands. So for example, you know, it, it is going to be difficult for them, you know, to go to that first therapy session or to call a hotline and ask for help or make the report. So make an offer, right? To be there, go with them, help call to do that support, but don't demand that they do that. Um, you know, we have to give them the agency and the choice in their journey, which again is very difficult. Um, it sounds like with uh, David and Rachel, like their healing kind of happened together. You know, it, it sounds like it kind of bounced off each other. And, but sometimes it may be the case that it's not, you know, happening at the same time. So that, you know, the primary person may not be ready to seek help or be ready to make a report. Um, and we have to, you know, respect that. So sometimes it may be happening in different, different, you know, timelines. Those are great points, Orialis, because I think one of the, the hardest things is, is if somebody doesn't have that ability to seek help and they can also feel pressured 
And, you know, I know for years I resisted therapy. I just, because again, when that's not part of your culture and, you know, you're raised a certain way and you're, you know, you're used to kind of just burying your emotions down and letting them just kind of simmer down there. You don't really know. And when somebody maybe makes a suggestion that could really help you and they're trying to help you, that can be scary. And, you know, and, and that can be met with hesitation and pushback. So I like the, the offer as opposed, you know, you're making a suggestion here. This may help you, you know, this. And Rachel was very good because she's, you know, she had all these outlets and I didn't. And I remember her telling me at one point, I want you to talk to somebody because I didn't tell anybody my story for a long time. You know, it was just something I didn't bring up to any of my friends because it was that intense. I didn't, I, you don't know how to, I didn't know how to talk about these things, but she made it really adamant just to, to tell somebody. I eventually confided in a good friend of mine. And even that was a good first step just to kind of let it out. You know, I wasn't ready for therapy at that point. I wasn't ready to really face it and go through all these steps that needed to happen to find healing. But that was a really good first place. And she offered it. She didn't, you know, kind of force the hand. She said, hey, this might help you. And I found that a little bit easier to, to digest than you need therapy, you know? Yeah, it's like coming at it from, like approaching it from compassion versus like judgment, right? So compassion of like, I care about you. I see you struggling, right? Like how can I support you in getting this help versus like you should be over this by now or like, why aren't you seeking help, you know, versus like, yeah, coming from that judgment. And yeah, and I guess along with that, like don't blame or, you know, judge the primary or the secondary survivor for their reactions. Cause again, it's, it can be so varied and they're having a completely natural reaction to a completely abnormal um, situation that nobody is prepared for. Um, so don't blame or judge. Um, I guess one thing that secondary survivors can do to help be supportive is to, you know, try to seek resources, understand natural reactions, um, you know, again, like re- look up treatment options, you know, for the person. Um, it may be hard and o- they may feel so overwhelmed, right, just getting through the day that it's going to be difficult for them to do that research. So, um, that's something like tangible, you know, that you can do is do some of that research for them uh, to encourage them in getting help. Definitely. And I also wanted to uplift kind of that very normal feeling of like not feeling ready to seek out those services that are available because as we know, healing looks different for everyone and there's no timeline on it either. So survivors and secondary survivors, absolutely. Um, you know, these resources are always there for you. So when you are ready and you'll know when you are, um, please, uh, you know, reach out and and seek that support. Um, Everyone's there ready uh, to give it to you. Um, We already kind of talked about, you know, this difficulty of finding services specifically catered to survivors, um, secondary survivors, like you mentioned, David. So we also talk about how the VSC is able to do um, awesome things for secondary survivors. Um, I wanted to ask, why do you think it's important that these services are specifically catered towards secondary survivors? Yes, it's because it's coming from a different perspective from the secondary, you know, most cases like mine, I wasn't there, you know, so I don't know the details. And, 
you know, I, except for what I've heard between, you know, Rachel sharing and her speaking and through the court and the trial, which hearing all those details was just gut-wrenching. Um, so it's, it's, it's important to have that different perspective because it's a different kind of fear. It's a different kind of guilt because, you know, your a lot of your energy is going towards the victim. Um, you know, so it, that's a very specific kind of stress to be addressed, you know, because it's just, there's different range of emotions because you, you're trying to be sympathetic to somebody and you're trying to be helpful to them. Um, but their experience obviously was different than yours because they actually lived it. You're just living it with them. So that's a major difference. And also like that unique experience of, you know, having to sort of accept where the survivor is at in their healing journey and accept the choices that they make, you know, cause again, like they went through it. So they're going to make their choices and decisions about going to counseling, how they decide to, um, move forward with the case, all of that. And then you as a loved one, right. May struggle to accept or understand, you know, the choices that they're making or the timeline that they're on, uh, which is completely valid, you know, and you may need some extra, um, support, which is okay to say, you know, to accept and, you know, be able to, um, be there for them while they're going through their process. That makes complete sense. And, um, I, I hope that there's like more services like the VSC out there for secondary survivors. Um, cause it just, you're just highlighting how important it is. Um, David, you talked, um, about how you do these speaking engagements and you and Rachel are amazing activists through sharing your stories with the community. Um, and I love hearing like the response that, that, um, people have to hearing the story and also like other people, um, who share their stories in addition to that kind of like this communal healing. So have you actually found people reaching out to you or responding to your story at all? Not directly, not like people reaching out and calling me or, or texting me, but, you know, when we're in situations with other um, victims that we've met that, you know, that, that are involved with the VSC as well, and, and, and hearing their responses and then, you know, bonding with some of the other secondary survivors. Um, that was just, that was very rewarding. Um, just cause, you know, I think the biggest part of the, the struggle of the secondary survivor is the isolation that entails because, you know, you feel selfish and guilty if you start thinking about your own pain, um, as opposed to the pain of the victim themselves. So, you know, when you're able to find the support and, and be able to have this kind of an outlet that really kind of helps you navigate that because you're, you really just, you get stuck focusing on the victim, which of course they deserve all this attention, but you know, it's nice knowing as a secondary survivor that you can let go of that guilt, that it's okay that you're hurting too. And that it's okay that you need, you know, assistance too, and that you have your own healing to do that's separate from the victim that you need to, to work through yourself. So you deserve that love and attention too. Absolutely. And that actually kind of brings me to my final question here. Um, you know, Orialis, what would you say to a secondary survivor who may be struggling? Yeah, I mean, I would second uh, what David is saying. Absolutely. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, just I would say remember that no one has prepped you for this. There's no way that you could have um, prepared or or guessed that this would happen or, you know, know, have all the answers, you know, for someone. Um, So having that compassion, like patience with yourself. um, And like David said, like you deserve healing and support as well. Um, You know, and, and just calling and seeking that support and knowing that a lot of centers that do offer services for the primary survivors can also offer services for the secondary survivors. So you deserve that too. Yeah. I think that that's a beautiful place to sign off. But before I do, I wanted to give you Orielis or you, um, David, a chance to share anything that you wanted to bring up that we may not have covered before I sign off. I think the only thing I could maybe think of is just, you know, if, if there was somebody else in my in my shoes out there that you know has had to go through a situation and watch somebody they care about be affected by such a, a, a just a terrible crime that you're not the only one that's faced this drama so you're not alone in it and there's people out there that are not only available to help they're happy to help and knowing that that support is there and you know i don't know how we could have gotten through this without the victim service center i don't and that's why anytime you know louie or anybody calls we're like yes you know what, what can we do like absolutely happy to help so it's just knowing that you're not alone because that that's the worst part of all of it is the isolation and, and and it's just so sad that you know there's victims out there that that are scared to speak up for many reasons you know retaliation or just not knowing how to address it or just not knowing how to face it and just knowing that there is support out there when you're ready for it and just making being transparent that you know this is where you can go to help start your healing process that's so beautiful. And I think that's a wonderful place to sign off. So I want to thank the listener for listening to the Victim Service Center podcast. The VSC is a nonprofit organization that provides free confidential counseling services for victims of any kind of trauma in Central Florida and secondary survivors as well. To learn more about our services, please visit victimservicecenter.org. And to everyone listening, healing is not linear. And just like David said, you are not alone. Um, and I thank you so, so much, Orialis and David, for joining me today. Happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you both.